This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. Welcome to Resource Centre. This is Audrey Raj. Now, I think by now, most of us have heard about the incident that took place late last year at a volleyball championship in Johor. There's a viral video which clearly shows a man, said to be the Malacca coach, slapping two of his players during a break after they conceded points to their opponents. Now, actions uh, like... This obviously won't sit well with most of us, but there are some quarters that accept that disciplining methods like a slap are part and parcel of the sport. And this echoes into the workplace as well. There are offensive behaviours that we just grow up thinking is part and parcel of work life. Uh, threats of violence, bullying, actual physical violence like slapping. And this does not fulfil our basic necessity of safety. Safety in the workplace, safety in schools, safety on and off the court. So to talk to us about how we can mitigate these offensive behaviours is organisational psychology psychologist and CEO of Osaic, Hethel Doshi. Hethel, welcome back to Psychology at Work. We have a sobering topic on our hands today, don't we? Yes, we do. Thanks for having me, Audrey. Now, um, I think everyone's aware about what happened, about this incident. Now, this, this video has just gone viral. Can I just ask to, to, just to kick things off, you know, from a psychological perspective, what were your observations from this event and, and what happened after? I think it's very clear, obviously, that it is a wrong act. It is absolutely an incorrect act. So the first thought is a little bit of chaos. Like, why is this even a question? You know, if there is a shop theft, right? Something as petty as a shop theft. There is very clear understanding of the repercussions of that and it is acted on upon without much investigation that is required or long durations of period. So for me, it was a case of, where are the acts and the policies that should be in place so that it's not even a conversation? We don't even have to have a debate like this. It is a very clear understanding. Uh, so, for example, there's a section 323 of a penal code, but that and, and that talks about uh, offensive behaviours of uh, any form of harm on anybody. But we don't know whether that applies in the sporting world in that particular context. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably where the debate is. Is it okay um, because in the sporting world, people do hit and punch each other on the court and nobody goes to court for it, right? So I think it's that level of chaos uh, of, um, yeah, what are, what are policies and acts that are in place that makes this a non... Uh, we don't even need to have a conversation about this. Hmm. Yeah. It should be clear as day that it is absolutely not allowable for a 44-year-old male to be hitting two young females whether it's public or not. It's just end yeah. of story, post stop wrong. Yeah. Exactly. But why is this even being discussed? Do you, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, right? You know, we, we don't seem to have like regulations or policies that outrightly say that this is wrong. And we, of course, have heard how um, like the players' parents and some of the team members have come out to say that they back the coaches and not, they don't back the coaches' actions, but they accept what happened and that we should move on from this, you know, and it's just part and parcel of the sport. Why is this even, 
why is this even acceptable to some people? And why is it completely unacceptable to, to other quarters? I think in this case, we don't know who to trust, right? Sometimes people will say, oh, it's okay that it happened. But what is okay may not be normal at all. But what are our normal standards? What are our standards that are in place for us to begin to think about whether something is right or something is wrong? So number one, if the government doesn't have anything in place or Sporting World doesn't have anything in place, People then go by, oh, what my parents have said or what the coach is saying, but they don't understand and they have not been given like, um, you know, some kind of education where they sign a consent form knowing what is right and what is wrong. So, um, you know, this breeds a lot of mistrust. Like, who do you trust in this particular situation? It, there was a national Olympian, Dato Pandalela, uh, and she had mm. been an ex- a, a victim of sexual harassment and not for seven years. I mean, she, she kept quiet for almost seven years until she was triggered by something that she heard on uh, a talk show, I believe. And in that talk show, uh, her comments came after an actor, which I won't name. Uh, A particular actor said that he really enjoyed filming a rape scene. And it was in that particular situation where she was heavily triggered, knowing after seven years, even though what felt like it was okay at that point in time or something that she had to tolerate, at some point, things that you tolerated that were not okay are going to come up. And who do you trust then? It takes a long time before you can actually trust yourself because there is nobody else to trust when there's authorities that keep telling you that it's okay or that it is normal, whether directly or indirectly. In the case of University Malaya student, Ching, she was seeking to file a suit against an associate professor who had sexually harassed her some two years before that. Um, But the university's integrity unit had failed to reveal the punishment uh, that it was, you know, a punishable act. And the police had stopped pursuing the matter as well. So how is an investigator, when the police, when the university, when the integrity unit do not give us, you know, the answers, who do you then begin to trust? You've got a houseman in Penang who um, had apparently been a victim of an abusive workplace and he had taken his life. The police had recorded statements from 21 people relating to his death And as of today, this was like last year, as of today, even after 21 people were investigated, the the case remains classified as sudden death. So how can, what do you trust when clearly there is noise and there is a sense of injustice, but the authorities potentially do not reveal exactly what is right, exactly what is wrong, and the standards of, you know, what, what is the best practice over here and how the next person who goes through it, what exactly can they know and uh, how can they actually act and move forward? I think this leads to this sense of learned helplessness. Like, all right, I'm helpless here because we do, you know, and I think, you know, at this point in time, um, you know, as, as I, you know, you've got Serena Sundararaja, who was a gymnast in Malaysia. You've got a bowler, Shaidatul. Uh, you've got Afifa Badradu, Hamidi. You've got swimmer, Cindy Ong. You've got Tan Gekju, who's a sports administrator. All these people have already said, it is time to put in the Safe Sport Act. Until today, it has not been enacted. So justice should not only be said to be done or be shown that something is being done, but it actually should be felt and seen to be done to the final point of justice being served. Mm. And justice in a strong system is not a verbal act. It is one that is seen and acted upon. And then you can begin to trust the standards. I think Malaysia is at a point where we are where we are hoping to follow standards, but we can absolutely just create our own. You do not need to wait for 
Why do we need to wait for America, for UK, for Australia? Why? Hmm. Malaysia is absolutely capable of just setting and creating world-class standards. And from there, you can trust a standard rather than your parent or your coach or a friend. You know that there are standards in place and you can trust that it comes from very high levels and credible levels of authority as well. But we also see similar behaviour being normalised in the workplace. Um, incidences of bullying, uh, of being shouted at, of being called names, or even sometimes... Um, people being aggressive with one another in the workplace. So, you know, there, there are similarities um, in this kind of offensive behaviour in the workplace as well. Right, Hetel? Yeah. So in a study that Allside, which is our company, conducted last year, we um, looked at almost about a sample size of 1,200 Malaysian employees. Uh, it was found that 41% were at risk of experiencing organizational injustice in the workplace. And organizational injustice implies that uh, an experience where employees do not perceive to be receiving equitable outcomes for their input, um, and that there are non-explanations for a lack of how they're being treated or a sense of disrespect with how they're being treated. And Malaysia has a 40 or is at 41% risk of experiencing that according to the standards or ISO 45003 standard, which is an international standard of compliance or a plea for organizations to mitigate this level of risk that they put employees under. Um, so this act is in order or the standard is in order to, to have employee or organizations measure themselves against the standard see where they are at. And of course, if you send your child to school, you want them to have experience as little risk as possible. Uh, but as adults, we are experiencing close to 45, 41% risk of experiences of injustice and disrespect or offensive behaviors in the workplace. Um, so if I could share some details with regards to offensive behaviors, uh, you've got males and females experiencing um, close to 44% uh, females and males at 39%. Undesired sexual attention, females experiencing 23%, males experiencing 20%, undesired sexual attention in the workplace, mm. bullying at 60%, female 58%, male, threats of violence, females 9%, males 14%, actual acts of violence, females and males both at 8%. It's not a, not a very happy stat figure yeah. over there. Yeah, and very and, similar when it uh, with regards to gender as well. You know, I, I was expecting it to be maybe more skewed towards females, but this is really um, quite similar. Absolutely, very very similar. That both parties experiencing more or less the same experience in the workplace uh, on on all of these different dimensions over here. The most vulnerable group were the eighteen to thirty five year olds, and so whenever we share this data back to companies that we support in the benchmarking exercise. Um, the ones who are holding on to these reports are more senior people. So when the vulnerable groups are the ones who are 18 to 35, they often feel like, but we went through it at our time in our life. We've gotten over it. We know how to handle it already. They will learn as well. It's okay. Um, and it's very, very uh, important that there is no room for opinions over there. And that's why when we walk in, there is a standard in place where there's no room for, oh yeah, in your time, or this was my experience. It doesn't matter. We don't care about personal opinions over here. This is just data and standards that we should comply to. And in fact, majority of the organizations are, you know, have zero tolerance of offensive behaviors in place already anyway. So that really helps. 
All right, we are going to take a quick break for some messages. But when we come back, uh, we discuss why this continues to happen in some organizations, um, acts of bullying and uh, offensive behavior. And we also talk about if fear should be used as a motivational tool. All that and more happening on Psychology at Work on Resource Center. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Break from monotony, BFM 89.9. You are listening to Resource Center. It is the first Tuesday of the month, which means it is Psychology at Work on Resource Center with organizational psychologist and CEO of OSIC, Hethel Doshi. Today, we are talking about that incident that took place uh, late last year at a volleyball championship in Johor, where a man said to be uh, the Malacca coach slapped two of his players uh, after they conceded points to their opponents. Uh, there is a quote that I picked up from one of the uh, dailies here um, that said, uh, and this is from the coach itself, and he says, and I quote, I have my own approach to training my athletes, including psychological and physical methods. For me, I feel like that 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 approach is fear. So that tool to train or to motivate is fear. Is fear an effective motivational tool? It feels wrong asking this question because I kind of feel so strongly against it. But, you know, what are your thoughts? I think it doesn't take a psychologist, right? Um, like you said, it already feels wrong. Hmm. So if it feels wrong, it is wrong. Uh, in essence, if something feels wrong to you, it is generally sending you all kinds of data for you to pick up that signal and do something about it and put it in the right direction. Um, so, uh, yeah, there, there, were, there were lots of these different types of quotes that were coming out there as well. And everybody has their own opinions about how they should train and how they co should coach. Coming back again to uh, this concept of sportsmanship, right? So forget about the coaches for a minute because they are meant to be facilitators to produce an outcome of sportsmanship. Right? So forget about the coaches, forget about trainers, forget about psychologists. Sportsmanship is all about behavior and attitude that shows respect for the rules of the game and for other players. Does it also not include respect for yourself as a human being? Mm. If you're talking about respect for the rules of the game, what are the rules of the game that come into human relationships and human condition and human treatment. What, what are the rules for that? And how do you respect that? Um, I don't think there should be any room for opinions, really, honestly. I think everything should be evidence-based. There should be enough awareness on what is right, what is wrong, and how best we can leverage on human ultimate human potential over here as well. Um, so who benefits the most from this is important, right? Like, So when a coach says, I will use any method possible, so who benefits from it? Is he benefiting? Is the player benefiting? is the country, who's the ultimate beneficiary of it? It sounds like as if it is everybody that is benefited except for the athlete because the athlete mm. then becomes used as a tool to be able to achieve the outcome that everybody wants. And of course, the sportsman eventually makes money out of it. They make fame out of it as well. But he or she is being used as a tool, uh, not as a human being with potential. The concept of sports ethic, unfortunately, is different from sportsmanship. So when people come into the arena, right, and when they start playing sport, Unfortunately, there are deviances from respect, from rules of the game. There is this acceptance and a deep commitment to a system of values that is now known, obviously, as sports ethic. So what is a sports ethic? And this is where you hear a lot of sportsmen using these kind of languages because it is taught to them by their coaches. 
For example, you must prioritize sport above, over and above everything else. Uh, the second assumption is winning is a priority. The third one, you must explain, accept all the pain and risk that comes together with this. There should never be a, a situation of giving up despite any circumstance of pressure or pain. That's just expectations of you as an athlete, you know. It is, it is an assumption and it is uh, now the assumption has turned into a work ethic and that work ethic is now used as a standard rather than sportsmanship. So the outcome of sportsmanship rather than the behaviour in order to get there is totally deviant, totally doesn't, has no congruence over there. And the fourth ethic is that you do not accept your own limitations and you must confront all situations that must be dealt. So do not uh, uh, do not accept your own limits. And you would hear this from military personnel as well. Like, you know, when you think you are done, you're only 40% done. Like, can you imagine like you, when you really feel that you're done, you, you know, a lot of sportsmen will say you're only 40% done. And this is not a bad thing if it comes from the person themselves, right? It is a bad thing when obviously it is... It's, important, uh, it's imposed on them. Yeah, it is imposed on them. But then you're also talking about a relationship, right? It's a very intimate relationship between a coach and an athlete. It's an extremely intimate relationship, one where you begin to not be able to differentiate yourself from each other as well. So you also see the same thing in the workplace, right? They talk about peak performance and, you know, living up to your highest potential. But then that's deviant from a work ethic. A work ethic is die, die, come to work. A work ethic is you put work over, you know, other things. A work ethic is like, you know, you go above and beyond. You do not accept the limitations of lack of manpower, lack of resources, lack of this. You do it without any, um, uh, what, what is the word that they use? Don't come up with any excuses, right? So the, the, the hope for ultimate performance in the workplace versus the work ethic is deviant. And so because of that deviance and organizations don't know, right? Like, how do I match this up? How do I match human potential to maximizing human potential? I don't know what to do. I don't have enough creativity. So I'm just going to scare the living daylights out of them. Um, and I think it is pure, uh, uh, you know, it is uh, very low levels of innovative people that will use fear to motivate because fear does motivate. It has value, but it is not, a, a, you know, it is not motivating you. It is moving you. Motivation is actually moving forward. It is helping you to move forward only in the short term. Motivation is really literally moving forward. But how are you moving forward? You're moving forward in short term. You're moving forward because of somebody else, not because of you. So the longevity of it is not in order. And in 2016, a review, a review of studies of over 50 years suggests that the more you smack, the more you use any kind of aggression on a child, on an adult, they are eventually going to be defying you and uh, moving towards antisocial behaviors and aggression. And in the book opened by Andre Agassi, and probably any other athlete that has gone through any forms of violence, any child, any adult. Over a period of time, when they finally find themselves, they use things like, for example, in Andrea Gassi, he starts off his book by saying, I hate tennis. And things spiral on when he finally comes around to finding himself. He begins to alienate, and this is what fear does to you. The biggest thing it does, it begins to alienate you from other people and it alienates you from yourself. And you begin to live in silence, figuring out what the abuse has done to you, feeling afraid to talk about it. And even though he was winning championships, he finally spiraled into drug abuse, lost himself, lost games. The fear was not sustainable. But once he found himself and he used it as his own motivator, he ended up being a source of inspiration to the point of creating schools all over America um, 
that was all about educating people to the next level of how sporting can be experienced um, as, ch- as children as well. So he found himself and he used his own uh, aspiration, so not fear, but aspiration and hope to drive himself to even greater heights where now he's again a champion, but this time he's also serving community at a different level and he's healthy. So I think it's a win-win-win all around, right? Yeah, uh, Open is a beautiful book for tennis fans, uh, even if you're not a fan of sport, but it's it's really a, a beautiful story and a beautiful book. It's it, a good reading it from really Andrea. Is. I, I didn't know that you read that. It's a fantastic book. <laughs> You know, we're talking about Andrea Agassi here and we're talking about some of the the athletes of old. And I'm just wondering, why is this, using fear as a motivational tool now, you know, why is it suddenly not acceptable? Because it used to be okay in the older days. It's not an issue today. I'm just thinking about um, the... Back in the 90s, um, when former Manchester United coach uh, Sir Alex Ferguson would give everyone on his team, and sometimes members of the press, the hairdryer treatment, he'd literally be shouting at, the, at them until he would turn bright red. And I remember, you know, when I first started out um, in broadcast journalism some well, less than 20 years ago, my manager at that time, my supervisor at that time, used to give us the hairdryer treatment as well, you know, just like shout obscenities at us, you know fling things at us, you know, and it was an acceptable form of motivation. It was an acceptable form of leadership or coaching. Why is this, why was this not an issue back then, but it is somewhat of an issue today? Was it ever a non-issue in the past? I don't know. I, I was never comfortable, but I think people kind of felt like it was normal and it was acceptable. Yeah. I think anyone who's saying it was normal and acceptable in the past have forgotten all of the revolutions, the movements that people silently experienced as injustice and found a way to get together and created the next movement of progress and growth. It was never okay. The people who said it was okay were the ones who were perpetuating it and the ones who eventually were not were, were helpless because they couldn't do anything about it, they started telling other people that it was okay, that that's how it is. But it was never really okay. Martin Luther King, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, you, you've got all these people who knew that it was not okay. And they are our heroes today because they stood up for what was not okay. So it's never been okay. So what do we do then, Hetel? You know, what are some of the recommendations that you can give us, in, not just in the... In the sporting world, but in a workplace setting as well, because we now know this kind of offensive behavior is still happening out there and it's happening to both males and females. And it, it it's still prevalent. Maybe it's being hushed, but what are some of the recommendations that you can give us before this pretty much blows up in your workplace? So number one, I think that, not I think, well, number one, there has to be a decision. Forget about everything else. What is the decision that you make as an authority in your organization or as an association? What is a decision? Zero tolerance, I guess, would be a great decision. A zero tolerance of offensive behaviors and mitigating any kind of injustice because the problem with injustice is that it's perceptual. And we don't know until we begin to have conversations about it and we progress based on a new way of thinking about a certain situation. For example, uh, the doctors right now are going through experiences where they you know, are not happy being contract staff. We don't know whether this is just, we don't know whether it's unjust, but we need to be able to create a space where we talk about what is actually going on and move towards a new way of working rather than having strikes that are going on, for example, in the UK right now for the exact same or very similar circumstance that is going that is happening in Malaysia. And 
if we just pay attention, there, you know, it's going to move towards a very nasty space because it already has, not only in Malaysia but in the UK as well. So it is a decision that I think everybody is waiting for authorities to to make. Uh, the second one would be an assessment, so it's not opinion based. Again, I am the biggest, you know, biggest proponent of ISO standards. There are standards already in place. You don't have to worry what is the standard. Just follow accordingly and later, once you get the hang of it, you can adjust it. ISO 45003 is a fantastic way of putting, um, and you know, you can do this very easily through uh, various platforms. Uh, in our particular platform, you can get your results instantaneously. Not only the company gets it, but individuals get their assessment results as well. And you can benchmark yourself against all of your fraternity. For example, when we did some work with the legal fraternity, uh, they were like, oh, you know, uh, you cannot compare us to other other fraternities. Our fraternity is very different. But why can't the legal fraternity move towards a space where psychosocial risks are also limited? They're like, you know, yeah, legal industry is always going to be very difficult to deal with, but it doesn't have to be like that. Uh, you know, once you have your assessment results, make sure that you do psychoeducation, meaning you educate everybody about the results. Make sure then that there are three levels of intervention. What would the leader do? What would the team do even without the leader? And what, what should you do for a better workplace? Because everybody should take accountability. Reassess quarterly and make sure that you train and upskill everybody on what it means to create psychologically safe uh, environments that you know, uh, you mitigate as much risk as possible as well. Uh, make sure that then there is a very strong system in place where there are rewards, um, consequences uh, to making sure that we uh, show that this is a strong system. And lastly, um, you know, uh, allow the system to fight against, to fight itself. For example, the, in the case of Indian farmers, uh, they just fought against the, the, the ministry. They fought against the prime minister because... Um, they felt that there were policies that were put in place that were going to create very ne negative impact for the farmers in India. So allow your system, so for example, if I'm running a company, allow your company to fight against its own system as well so that you can create a better and better system. Um, and with that, yep, uh, I think these are some, some things that will definitely move the needle and it's a matter of just making a decision and auditing um, and once you have those conversations, I'm sure everything will move in the right direction as well. Hazel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us once again. Catch you again same time next month for another episode of Psychology at Work. I've been speaking with organizational psychologist and CEO of OSYC, Hazel Doshi. My name is Audrey Raj and this has been Resource Centre on Enterprise, BFM 89.9. Listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.